As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is a morning of fear. It is also a morning of revision, and it has been a week of revision for Wall Street uh, strategists across the board with Goldman Sachs slashing its year-end target for the S&P 500 to 3,600. It previously had been 4,300, a pretty big revision. Julian Manuel, equity derivatives and quantitative strategist at Evercore ISI, has been out ahead of some of what we have been seeing. Julian, have you reset some of your expectations based on the Fed meeting this week? Oh, we, we certainly have. Look, we're calling for earnings next year uh, basically to be flat year on year uh, with this year. And, and frankly, we were below consensus and continue to be below consensus uh, for 2022 as well. And obviously, uh, we slashed our price target. And it's one of these years that now, actually, Wednesday has ushered in the emotional phase uh, of this bear market, uh, which frankly, every bear market does tend to have an emotional phase, uh, simply because when you look at uh, what the Fed chair said and the projections, and importantly, it's that unemployment number projected to be 4.4% next year, uh, where the rate of change, there's never not been a recession following hard upon that kind of change. And all of that has caused this, the emotion to come into the markets and subsequently, of course, these types of revisions. You know, I mean, Julian, I mean, rising bond yields, higher commodity prices, these have been the two dominant factors that are impacting U.S. equity earnings. I'm wondering, the pace of equity earning uh, downward revisions, are, are we comfortable with that? I mean, is it going to accelerate over the next few months? Well, it, it's actually less about the pace than the band of uncertainty. So if you look at uh, estimates for next year, they range from 185 on the low end to 255 on the high end. That's absolutely unprecedented, and it speaks to the uncertainty in all asset markets. And again, frankly, when you think about it and you see the screen, uh, you know, everything is red today. And that tells you that uncertainty really is approaching those critical levels. Well, Julian, on the earnings side, we have been having the conversation for some time now that there is inflationary pressure, higher input costs. It's going to weigh on corporate margins. They aren't going to be able to pass it on. And yet it's been actually okay to this point. Why would things change now as we're seeing some of those inflationary pressures winding down a bit? Why is it now ultimately that those margin pressures are really going to come through? Is it just an inability on the demand side to be passing those costs on to the end customer? 
So, Kaylee, if, if you think about this year, it's been very unusual in that the sentiment data on the consumer side has been, you know, subdued, you know, worse than subdued the entire year because of the consumers sort of internalizing uh, the idea of inflation. But yet the spend has been, you know, really quite reasonable uh, when you think about it. That, in our view, is about to change uh, because, frankly, conditions are really warranting uh, a little bit more of a, a button-down uh, type of attitude. And to th that point, that's where the attack on margins, the attack on, you know, volumes comes in. And again, uh, the risk in markets but the story is that this is part of uh, the Fed's calculus. Uh, the, the question being, though, uh, are we in the process of potentially breaking something? Well, Julian, to that point, let's begin where we started. Uh, let's end where we started, rather, where you said this marks the emotional phase of this bear market. What are we currently pricing in? How long will the recession be? How deep? The idea of a soft landing or at least a shallow recession, is that kind of off the table? It's not entirely off the table. What we think the Fed may have been missing, uh, and, and it's our view, that inflation is actually starting to come in. Whether you measure it uh, by break-evens, uh, you know, there's a disconnect uh, between the fact that embedded inflation expectations simply aren't there. And in this respect, this is not the 1970s. Uh, and in our view, we think the data over the next couple of months will reflect that. Is it going to happen Quick enough for the Fed not to do 50 or 75 uh, on November 2nd? Possibly not. Uh, but frankly, uh, we think that that type of reckoning is out there in the future. And that's the kind of psychology that could forestall or make any recession in 2023 a more shallow event. Julian Emanuel of Evercore ISI, derivatives and quantitative strategist. At what point does the rest of the world's problem become the U.S.'s problem as the dollar strengthens and the rest of the world grapples with not only the same backdrop, but also the imported inflation of a weaker currency? It already is, okay? The, look, we know what the inflation numbers are here. And, and frankly, we heard from corporate America uh, last week. Uh, there was one uh, very key uh, uh, pre-announcement uh, that basically the uh, recession is being imported uh, into the U.S. And so uh, from that perspective, uh, we are at that point. Uh, the thing that is different about the last several days is that clearly the Fed has been guiding the markets in terms of what it expects, what it wants, how it uh, wants this to unfold. Uh, but the last couple of days, again, as I uh, said earlier, uh, entering the emotional phase, we're now now likely at the point where the markets are going to start guiding the central banks. And that flips the script. Uh, and that, frankly, is sort of the danger that you get into in September and October, but ultimately for us will provide at some point the buying opportunity. Julian, everyone is just so bearish this morning, huh? It's just unbelievable. I mean, my question for you is, what is the upside risk to global growth? You know, what are the markets not seeing here? Is it China reopening? Is it Russia-Ukraine de-escalation? I mean, how should investors even try to position for some of that? So that's the challenge because the, the tail outcomes on both sides are potentially large. The expectation is that zero COVID will end sometime early in the spring next year. Um, obviously, the news 
coming out of Russia and Ukraine has been more favorable. Uh, we don't know what that outcome could be, but certainly the pressures are beginning to build there. As an investor, whether you do or you don't use options, you have to have an optionality mindset, realizing that without notice, you could get that kind of upside. And frankly, that plays against the fact that sentiment, however you measure it, is about as pessimistic as it gets at a time of year, September and October, where you do tend to see tradable bottoms. Well, to that point, Julian, Bank of America publishing this morning saying investor sentiment is unquestionably the worst it has been since the crisis of 2008, noting that we'd saw inflows into cash in the week through Wednesday of $30.3 billion, people fleeing equities, running into the safety of a cash haven. Is Are we at the point where bearish is no longer actually bullish? It is just straight up bearish? Uh, for a time, for a time. And, and look, well, let's be frank about it. Think about it this way. There has only been one bull market in 2022, and that's the bull market for cash. <laughs> uh, so, so from that perspective, we need to see that moderate. And we would say that the initial signal, look, think about it. Uh, the Fed chair has told you that the base case is a recession. Inflation break-evens are telling you that the market doesn't actually believe in the persistence of inflation in the long run. So in that environment, you could make the argument that for us, after three years, uh, long-dated yields in the U.S. start to offer value. That's what we're going to want to see at some point. Okay. So what what is that trigger point, Julia, just to sort of put a bow on all of this? When you talk about at some point there will be a buying opportunity, what is that trigger? Uh, it, it, it's the typical. We're going to need to see higher volume, uh, likely a move uh, in the in the VIX uh, towards 40. And then uh, again, and you've spoken about this uh, on and off of the morning, uh, the credit markets starting to uh, internalize a bit more stress, consistent with the kind of moves that we're seeing in the dollar. Julian Emanuel of Evercore ISI, thank you so much for all the time this morning. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. How much will the reduction in activity reduce the demand for commodities? Right now, we're looking at someone who has reset their expectations along with the rest of Wall Street this week, although it's not perhaps because of the Fed so clearly. Stephen Englander, Global Head of G10 FX Research at Standard Chartered Bank, joining myself, Kaylee Lyons, and Damian Sassauer this morning. I am wondering, Steve, what caused you to reset and raise up your expectations of a Fed funds rate? 
Well, look, we, we still expect the, the Fed to moderate the pace of hikes once it becomes clear that the labor market is beginning to topple over and that the economy is clearly under pressure. We had expected that to happen um, around this time by now, and it hasn't happened. Um, so we're stepping back. We think it's possible that one of the side effects of lower oil prices is paradoxically that by putting more money in people's wallets, it's supporting non-oil consumption and then kind of boosting demand for, you know, core CPI type of products and preventing those from coming down. So there's kind of looks to be kind of a trade-off between headline inflation and core inflation with one, you know, going close to zero, but the other one staying elevated. In, in that world, the, the Fed is just going to keep on hiking, you know, and then yeah. we just have to about to that reality. Well, it seems like we're all on board now with how much the Fed is going to hike, and we have an idea, maybe a better one, of what terminal is ultimately going to be. You're at four and a half percent, like many others, yet you still think they're going to start cutting by the end of next year, by 25 basis points. That's not the message we got from the dot plot or the chairman. Why do you think that? I, I think once the unemployment rate starts going up, the idea that, you know, you control the unemployment rate, like you control the, you know, the flame underneath your omelet while you're cooking it, I think is uh, uh, hopeful to say the least. And um, we, we think that given the, the pace of hikes, that once it becomes clear that they've hiked enough to get unemployment going, um, they'll say, look, we, we, we don't have to go that much further. So we're, we're, you know, and then at some point they sort of say, well, we're clearly well above neutral. We don't have to be that far above neutral. We, you know, we can be a little bit, you know, less above, you know, above neutral. But, we, you know, it doesn't mean dovish because it's still, you know, basically our Q4 to, you know, Q4 forecast is, it doesn't change all that much. It just means that they, um, you know, they're hawkish and they're modulating their hawkishness according to the circumstances. Steve, my colleagues at Bloomberg Economics placed the probability of a recession over the next 12 months at roughly 54%. Do you think the Fed can actually engineer a soft landing or is that ship sailed? You know, I, I think a soft landing is um, it, it's something that you want. It's, it's, you know, it's not something that you would ever count on as a central banker. I, I think that, um, you know, it's a way of making the, the hawkishness and the tightness more palatable. But, you know, uh, it's, it's like discussions we had about escape velocity a couple of years ago and so on. It's, it's just like so hard to grasp that I think that the uh, risk is that if you get, you know, you have to slow the economy enough to get inflation down. The odds are heavily, if you're doing that, you're going to have a recession. You know, a few months back, Steve, if you recall, uh, we were speaking at the Harvard Club to a bunch of China watchers. And so my <laughs> Wait, question- what, what was that, Damien? Can you just do that I'm one I'm sorry, the, the Harvard Club? Sorry, here in New York. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, so we were talking to a bunch of China watchers. We were talking about uh, uh, China-US yield divergence. We were talking about dollar yuan, and we were talking about the PBOC's reluctance to cut rates because of capital outflows. I wonder, can you just share your thoughts on that? I mean, do you see the PBOC continuing to cut rates in the face of what's going on here? You know, it, look, it, it, when you make the case for sort of having some restrictions on capital mobility, I think being able to run your domestic economy somewhat independently of the rest of the world is, is the most powerful uh, element of this, assuming you're, you're running, you know, the correct policy. So I think that the, um, you know, given that the economy is soft and, and has surprised on the downside, it looks like they're going to continue to maintain, um, you know, kind of easy money. I, I don't think that they're going to, um, you know, 
be super soft, but I think the bias still is towards easy money there. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah. Stephen, before we let you go, I just have really a simple question for you. Would you buy the pound today? Um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Why not? I yeah, mean, basically, I'm how much done. further does it have to go? Well, you know, they're really rolling the dice on this. I mean, this, this will be the greatest experiment ever run if, if it succeeds in stimulating the, the UK economy. But I, I think there's a real question mark about applying a lot of fiscal to an economy which is facing a lot of supply constraints. We, you know, U.S. tried that in 2021 and we, we saw what happened. And, you know, I think the market is, you know, watching the, the budget and, and just kind of digesting this. Um, the most, I'd say that the range of views is um, dire to, you know, cross your fingers and, and light some candles. You know, if it works, it's, it's great. But I don't think anyone really has confidence that this is a policy that's going to, to really get growth going again. Okay, so and, Stephen... And it, it's showing up as a weak pound. We just have about 30 seconds, but if lighting candles doesn't work and, and saying a prayer, where are we headed for the pound dollar cross? Uh, we'll have to see. I mean, you know, the, look, the, um, there's the Bank of England and, you know, the market's marking up what the BOE is doing. I, I think it's going to be very delicate because raising rates um, harshly in this environment could lead to even more pressure on the currency if the market just sees these things are incompatible. It's a, it's a very tough situation. Steve Englander of Standard Chartered Bank, thank you so much. Joining us now, Dan Suzuki, always a brilliant mind, deputy CIO at Richard Bernstein Advisors, who has been ahead of the game for a long time, being highly bearish, seeing really no upside. Right now, the world is coming to your view. Are you starting to be a little bit more positive or do you feel even worse? <laughs> uh, well, good morning, Lisa. You know, I don't I don't think there's any real reason to sort of change the view. I mean, we're happy to be cautious here. I think Right now, I mean, what we've been saying is that there's only two certainties for the foreseeable future. It's that profits growth is going to continue to slow and probably surprise the downside relative to people's still pretty, you know, elevated expectations. And liquidity is going to continue to tighten. And that's the worst possible combination for markets. So unless you see signs that either of those things is reversing course or at least stabilizing, it's hard to get really bullish here. Do you think, Dan, that the market has now proper, properly, appropriately priced the Fed? And if we have done that, is the next thing going to be properly pricing in the corporate profit downturn you think we'll see? And what does that look like? Yeah, Kaylee, I think that's a that's a very good summation of, of my view. I think um, right now... Um, you know, the market for, for most of this year, people were very skeptical, skeptical about inflation initially. And then they were skeptical about the Fed's reaction to inflation. Now people have come around to believing the Fed. So I, I do believe a lot of that's priced in. So as you price in the next stage of this cycle, which is that slowing growth environment you mentioned, I think that's going to have a very different impact on on rates, particularly on the longer end of rates. So I think, you know, this one of the big transitions we're, we're probably going to be you know, faced with in the next month or so, or even in the next coming months, is that shift of, you know, a tighter Fed up until now meant higher longer term rates, you know, perhaps, you know, a tighter Fed going forward is going to actually mean lower rates because it means lower long term growth, lower long term inflation. 
Dan, you've often highlighted the difference between an economic recession and a profit recession. I'm wondering, you know, what sectors offer protection from a profit recession? Are we talking consumer staples, healthcare, utilities? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what we tell people is that the cycle is driven by cyclicals. And so, you know, the stuff that's going to hold up better when when growth is slowing is is are those stable earnings growth sectors such as everything you mentioned, you know, staples, utilities, healthcare. They're just less economic sensitive. You're going to still go out there and buy toothpaste, and you're still going to go out there and buy your meds, and that's why their earnings are going to hold up on a relative basis much better. Now. It, depending on how bad the slowdown gets, you can still see, you know, uh, negative growth rates for, and negative, you know, price performance. You know, but it's a rel- relative game in that type of environment. I love it. Invest in toothpaste and toilet paper. That seems to be the <laughs> trade. The other trade Hygiene. is, yeah, exactly. Uh, perhaps people will continue with that. Hopefully, uh, there, <laughs> the other issue is uh, Evercore ISI, as Julian Emanuel was saying, there has been only one bull market in 2022, and that's the bull market for cash. How much are you invested still in cash or cash-like instruments as real yields continue to climb? Yeah, I think this is a great point. I mean, right now we have probably one of the highest, you know, exposures to cash and cash-like investments that we've had in in the history of the firm. So I think that you know, there's a there's a lot to be said for the the safety, the income, and being able to c- capitalize on this you know higher rising short rate environment that we're in the midst of. Um, but we're at, right now, as I mentioned, we're kind of a barbell between you know that cash position, which is very high. And you know exposure to long-term treasuries, which is if we're if we're right about the growth outlook and we're right about how the market's going to have to interpret that growth outlook, you know you could actually see meaningful upside uh, in these areas that have gotten crushed this year, uh, particularly at the long end of the curve. Can you give us a sense, Dan, of what that means in terms of the biggest cash allocation in the history of your fund and, and sort of the progression over 2022 in terms of how you've built that holding? Yeah, um, you know we've held a, a decent cash, posi- uh, ca- cash position for a while in terms of cash-like investments, but it's certainly increased over the last you know three to six months. You know, right now, you know, of our multi-asset flagship portfolio, you know, it's approaching 20%. You know, it's probably about 17% or so of the portfolio is in cash and cash-like investments, and I think you know it, it's a lot, but it gives you a lot of dry powder. It gives you a lot of safety, and again, you also get to capitalize on these higher rates uh, that the Fed is providing us. Dan Suzuki of Richard Bernstein Advisors. Thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
people are concerned that the market, that the economy, or not the market, the economy is not deteriorating quickly enough. It is highly uncomfortable for economists to be looking at that, including Janice Eberly, who has incredible and extensive experience in administrations as a chief economist to the White House from 2011 to 2013. She is currently senior associate dean and professor of finance at the Kellogg School of Management, and she joins us now. Jen Eberly, thank you so much for being here. When you take a look at this backdrop in markets, what is your fear for how this translates to the economy? Good morning, Lisa. It's great to be with you. Um, you're right that there's a lot of market turmoil. The, the, the Fed's initial announcement of the 75 basis points, of course, wasn't the surprise. It was the surrounding messaging that included you know, the, the Fed's not only willingness, but their expectation that rates would be above 4% by the end of the year going into 2023 and stay higher for a longer period of time than they had previously conveyed. So that clearly increases the likelihood of a downturn uh, and potentially the severity of any subsequent recession. So that's what's really created the, the volatility in the markets because it, it puts much more pressure on the supply side of the economy and, and what we might be looking for for on the on on that side, on the real side of the economy. Jan, the message from the Federal Reserve is we're not going to blink. We are going to look at the unemployment rate rising and we are going to tolerate and keep doing the job until the job is done. Do you buy that narrative or do you think unemployment may reach a level in which the Fed has no choice but to turn the other way? They've been abundantly clear that the chairman said in Jackson Hole, and he reiterated this uh, in, in his news conference this week, that the message hasn't changed. What changed was the quantitative uh, message that came out. So it gives much less room for interpretation. And the quantitative uh, message reflects the, the message to the economy that the Fed and, and markets had had some optimism that the supply side might soften and make a dramatic aggressive move on the Fed side less necessary. But that hasn't happened so far. And so the Fed message is clear that they cannot and will not wait for the supply side to move favorably, that they're acting aggressively now. And you know that, that gives us this exposure. If the Fed's not gonna be a shock absorber, what's gonna happen on the real side in commodities, mm. in uh, energy, and in housing, for example. We'll get to housing in just a minute, but if I could just ask about the inflation target first, when the chairman says it will be enough, we are going to get inflation down to target. Is a 2% inflation target still realistic in this new world, or is the Fed going to have to change its definition of success? Well, bringing inflation down is a long process, right? So they're focused on that 2% target because that's what they committed to and that's what's in their mandate. Um, but the inflation process, which, and, and the transmission of monetary policy through to inflation relies on a much slower cadence of uh, households pulling back on uh, auto purchases, on housing purchases, firms pulling back on investments because they're more expensive. Um, that moves in a much slower way. So, you know, they're not thinking we're going to get to 2% immediately. That, that will take time. Uh, inflation moves at a slower cadence than market reactions. 
Uh, Doctor, I believe the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is now at 6.55%. That's the highest since March of 2002. I mean, housing starts picked up slightly in August, but I mean, building permits are down, you know, new pending sale, everything, you know, decelerating. Just how bad can things get in the U.S. housing market? That, that housing market is uh, acting in, in, in some ways in a counterintuitive and, and counterproductive way to the inflation story. Um, rents and, and housing costs are both an important part of the inflation indices that we use, um, and they're also the biggest part of households' budgets. So people really feel those increases in costs. The, the way to bring those costs down durably is to increase the supply of available housing. So to have more construction, more building of homes and apartments uh, for, for people to, to rent and, and, and to buy. But in the increase in costs, as you noted, the higher mortgage costs, that increases the carrying costs of real estate, and it also increases the cost of building and construction. So the higher interest rates in this market can actually be counterproductive because they're reducing supply and that puts upward pressure on prices, not downward pressure on prices, which is what we'd like to see. So it's a reminder that, you know, it, it's not an argument for lowering rates, but it's a reminder that bringing inflation down in a market like housing um, takes a lot of time for the market to, to cool off and, and normalize. And it's not just about monetary policy, which we should also remember monetary policy is really powerful, but it's not a Swiss army knife. You know, it, it's not a multi-purpose tool. And we still have to do the hard work on the real side of building homes, continuing to innovate, investing in our productive capacity so that we have a, a strong uh, economy that's set for growth going forward. We just have about a minute left, but given the, how much bond prices have gone down, how much yields have risen, how much can the United States and frankly other nations around the world really invest in the way that they maybe perhaps need to in the upcoming years, given the punitive borrowing costs? So there, there's two parts to um, the building. There's having uh, productive projects, good ideas going forward. And, and I think we have those. The other part is the financing, which can be from borrowing, but it can also be from other sources, um, including cash on hand. So, so firms are pretty well financed now, especially in the US. The rising costs around the world, you, see, you saw central banks move in concert yesterday to raise rates. Some of that is that they're facing the same inflationary pressures that we're facing in the US, but some of it also is the relative value of the dollar. Um, it's got, as you mentioned, the movements in, in currency markets. That's very difficult for many economies to, um, to, to manage and to uh, deal with because the higher value of the dollar increases the cost of their imported goods as their currency falls, also increases the cost of their debt payments if they have dollar denominated uh, debt themselves. So that puts extra pressure uh, on them to raise rates and, and not let the U.S. get too far ahead of them. Jan Everly of the Kellogg School, thank you so much, also formerly of the White House from 2011 to 2013 as the chief economist at uh, the, uh, the Treasury Department. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.